0: If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myselfie, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlifes completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. All right. Well, good morning and good evening and bonjour to my most fabulous friend and guest on Identity Talk, Karen Carbo, who has written amazing books, both fiction and nonfiction, which is impressive to me as a writer, because not every writer can do that. But the most notable books and recent books are The Gospel According to Coco Chanel, In Praise of Difficult Women, which I loved. And then your new book, which is so exciting. Tell us about uh, the title. I want to hear it from you. I want to hear you say it.
1: Um, The title, first of all, thanks for having me, Jana. It's just wonderful to be here. Um, This is such an excellent podcast, and I'm so glad you're doing it. I think um, the world needs it now more than ever. Thank you. So my new book is called Yeah, No, Not Happening. And in fact, I'm going to make a video in which I school people in the correct way to say, uh, yeah, no, not happy.
0: No, that's, <laughs> that's totally why I wanted to hear you say it. Cause I've heard you say it in person and everybody's probably gonna have their interpretation but because it's so you. Right. <laughs> It had to come from your voice. Yeah,
1: no, not happening.
0: That, that's why I had to save that, um, which is exciting. So it's the middle of May that comes out, and we're going to talk about your new book and how you feel about all that. But I love how you say it. I just can hear it in my voice when I read it. It's so you. You know,
1: it's so funny because I'm here in France. We are actually making the best of amazing um, telecommunication. And I was at a very appropriately socially distant birthday party last night. And even we were the only native English speakers and there was a German couple there. And I heard her say, yeah, no, yeah, no. It's universal. But that idea of saying sort of, yes, I hear you, but no, I am not agreeing with you is, it it has become a a popular locution globally, apparently.
0: My favorite way of saying that would be Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I like it almost as one word, like an arc that, yeah, no, (laughs)
1: right, it is almost one word that you (laughs) push together. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah,
0: no. I want to start with just the act of writing because it is who you are. Mm -hmm. So, since we're talking about who we are in the world, I want to cover writing as an act, as a process, and as air because I think they're three different things. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about who you are as a writer, and what that means to you?
1: That's an interesting question. It's one I've actually been thinking about a lot since we've all been in quarantine and are really sort of face-to-face with ourselves for a long period of time every day. I've, I've been writing, you know, or I've gone to writing as a place where I found meaning in the world since since I was a child. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, you hear a lot of times writers will talk about, that they were oh i read dickens when i was in third grade and i read you know shakespeare and i i wasn't a really precocious reader in that way i mean i just come from a middle class suburban southern california household my my mother you know she read she read fear of flying and and a lot of books that you would buy at the market that had very silvery like psychedelic covers <laughs> you know, those books. Um, so I wasn't, even though I got A's in English and so on and so forth, I wasn't sort of this genius, brilliant reader, but I would go to writing to make sense of the world from a very young age. So, you know, sort of regardless of what's going on in terms of publishing or in terms of my career, that going to writing as a place that feels comfortable, Um, you know, I tend to think very quickly, it slows my mind down in a way that that sort of also helps kind of lower anxiety. Like many people, I have some anxiety issues. And so writing just as an act, and especially handwriting, I still do a lot of handwriting. And and more than ever, um, handwriting is a very soothing act. So, you know, there's a lot of things about writing just just for my entire life was something that I went to. So I almost can't even talk about it in terms of content creation or telling a story or craft or any of that. Just as an act, it's something that has always um, comforted me. It has interested me. Um, I have a somewhat, um, I don't want to say short attention span, but um, kind of historically growing up, I would pick things up very, very quickly and then tire of them equally quickly. Um, and writing has ever been that. It's always been an endless challenge and something that was endlessly interesting to me and endlessly comforting to me.
0: Do you like the writing that you create and then cultivate or do you like the writing that you go into and then the writing surprises you or is it a combination of both? Because I'm learning how they're different.
1: That is a wonderful observation. And it's something I actually talk about a lot in the classes I teach. Um, I think the writing that, that when you set yourself up to surprise yourself is when it is truly thrilling and exhilarating. I think part of the craft, though, there's a lot of hoeing the fields to get to that place. Sometimes I think writers, when you're starting out, just sort of the discovery, it's like here and here and here, and the discovery is all exciting, but you still, at the end of the day, have an obligation to communicate with the reader, which is part of why writing is such an endlessly interesting and complex activity. So, you know, setting yourself up, grounding your work in a way that makes sense to the world, and then kind of within those parameters and those strictures, discovering something new,
0: I think is it's, it's why we do it. I'm going to say, I don't think I came to that realization until I've been in my own creative writing MFA program over the last couple of years at 53. I mean, I think I've had moments where pieces of my writing were like, oh, well, that's cool. But the truly deep epiphany wow, I didn't see that coming where it's brought me to tears or it's made me laugh or like it taught me something is so powerful. And it takes a while to get there. It's not like it takes a whole lot of patience and self-kindness to make room for that, I think. I think you're exactly right. And the other thing, um, you know, I think sometimes when we start
1: out writing, we think I have a great story to tell and it's a story that, we feel comfortable telling because we imagine that we've already processed it and we know, we know what the interesting high points are, we know what the excitement is, but that's not usually interesting writing for us as writers or for readers. I think readers also get very exciting, excited when they can tell the writer is discovering something new, especially in a story that they know well.
0: One of my professors, Jay Ponteri, talks a lot about writing is really listening. And he has been really clear and helpful in just talking about all the ways you can listen and to use listening as a process to inform the writing.
1: And are you listening when he says listening, is it listening to the world around you? Is it listening to your, what are you listening to? Yes. Yes. All
0: everything inside and outside. (laughs) The answer is yes. Uh, Yeah so happening. Yeah, it's so happening.
1: (laughs) And I think it's interesting, even though my book is not about this in particular, I think when writing, you know, when we start getting to kind of a scary place or a place that we aren't sure of what the outcome is, we tend to say, yeah, no, that is not happening. I am not opening that door. I am not opening that can of worms. I am not. And that is, of course, always the moment that you need to walk through the door, that you need to open that And it's so, I mean, it's adorable. I have students that you can see it happening before your eyes of them saying, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, well, that is, that's where all the good stuff is. That's where the epiphany is. That's where, I don't know.
0: If I can tell you, I want to lose 10 pounds and then you can hand me a rice cake and I'll look at you (laughs) like, (laughs) forget it. I'm going chocolate, baby.
1: I think the rice cakes just in general, I mean, I'm sorry for the rice cake manufacturer because I really hate in this climate to suggest that any business that we should say no to it. But I think rice cakes need to find another line of the rice cake manufacturers of the world.
0: I think maybe that could be packing material. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> maybe there's the new reclamation of the rice cake. Uh, I think
1: you're right. Instead of those plastic pillows they put in That's what I'm saying.
0: There, yeah. Be, be a good consumer. Exactly.
1: I right. think But you need to call someone and, and suggest this to, to somebody.
0: I think so, too. And, you know, in thinking about when you're talking about your writing and letting it surprise you, do your books serve As diaries in a way, like a snapshot of a moment in time, because I know sometimes I'll go back and read something I wrote maybe a year ago or two years ago. I'm like, huh, that's interesting, or ooh, you know, it'll make me cringe or something. But for you, you've written for so many years. Do you ever go back to a book and look at it as like a diary or a snapshot in time of where you were personally?
1: I think that's exactly right. And it's, um, you know, especially if you've written sort of over the years from a very young person. And i look back at some of the work and i think formally it's interesting but i am not a very i'm very young and judgmental which is interesting because it allows you to have a point of view you know it allows like you have a very firm point of view you know stepmother you are an asshole like that is my firm point of view well she also happens to be a human being who's had some tragedy who is flawed like all of us and and, you know, I look back at some of the very, very early things that I wrote, and it would be interesting to do a revision as, as someone who's been through some of the things that I was, I was you know, being very funny and snarky and satirical. And, and like I said, I think I was sharper as a writer then, but also kind of less kind.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder because it's not that your writing is, I mean, it is snarky and some things, do you think that you use that as a device to get the reader to like to evoke a response or because that's actually how you hear it in your head or both? I think it's some, somewhat of a default
1: setting. Um, you know, it's interesting. If I can't figure out something in my work, it's very easy to go to the funny place. I think it makes readers comfortable. Well, you know, that's the thing, especially if you're talking about something you know that that's complicated and and necess- and not necessarily cheery and uplifting to be funny it gives the reader a little break it gives them a relief sometimes it undercuts what you're saying and that's when i think it's habitual it can undercut in fact the edits of this book it was it was much much funnier early on and my editor said you know you and she talks to me about this all the time and I hear her all the time and I don't seem to be able to do it <laughs> even though I hear her and I know what she's saying is that there's places where you have to be quiet there's places where you have to let the anecdote roll out and tell the story there's places where things are serious and even though there's an opportunity for dark humor and even though there's an opportunity for satire maybe you don't want to take that opportunity because the the larger message you're trying to convey, which I believe in, um but you, you know you, you want to you want to embrace that and not just go to the funny
0: stuff. I think that's true. You know that's probably why some of the stand-up comedians are so brilliant. They know the zingers, like when to step in right. and say something and when to step back right. and let it sit. And in my own book, like this is my first book, I I really tried to be aware of that. It's not an easy thing to do. Like, I tried to be funny when something was difficult or dark and take it and make it right. extend it out to the nth degree for the ridiculous factor of it all, the exaggeration. But it's a tough thing to know how to do. I think it's almost harder than writing through some of the pain. I agree. And
1: I also think that I go funny because. I'm really terrible at being earnest. Like it's so bad, Janet. It's so, it's like, I should just go straight to the Hallmark card factory. And it, and I don't know, brained at such a young age to show, not
0: tell. Does it make you uncomfortable? I just don't think, I mean. Or are you just not cut out for that sort of earnest? Feeling? I don't know because I've tried. Like when
1: <laughs> Like when I've taken edits over the years. And they'll say like, well, no, you really need to this beat. You need to extend it. You need to like connect the dots for us. And and I'll try and do it. And they will always wind up taking those those sentences out because they're so corny. Mm. So trying to find a way to communicate the seriousness or the profundity of what I'm trying to say without just slipping mm. into the banana peel, <laughs> but not being the hallmark. <laughs> and so we've learned... Two hugs uh, and a heart make a uh, home. You know? um, yeah,
0: it, it's tough. Yeah, it is. You're really good at it, though. I mean, <laughs> you're really, really good at it, and. I want to say that a lot of the stories that you write about are about real life conflict and inner dilemmas. And you put forward a lot of difficult topics, especially about women. So that got me thinking like why stories about women and why stories for women, right? Because they're two different things. Your stories are very much about women's struggles and in praise of difficult women. I love how you take people that we thought we knew and show them in completely new ways of why they did what they did, the choices they made, the vulnerabilities they had, what they brought to the table as women of their time. With most of your stories, there's, there's something in it that you want to convey. So what's that about?
1: Someone had to say this to me. And this, this gives you a sense of you can write for so long and you can think you know what you're doing, but it often takes a very careful reader to point things out to writers which is, I think, why for listeners who are writers, it's very important to have a trusted reader. So I've been consumed with, before I did in Praise of Difficult Women, I wrote these four books that we call loosely the Kick-Ass Women series. And I always thought that the reason why I was attracted to these stories is because they were, I'm very interested in women in 20th century culture. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the women that I wrote about were icons in art formers or or what have you. And I sort of always thought it was an intellectual pursuit and obsession. And then about three books into the kick-ass Women series, I was on a panel with Cheryl Strade, and somebody had asked the same, a similar question about why do you, you know, what, what attracts you to these women and their stories. And, and I had my shtick about being intellectually um, drawn to them. And also most of them were very long lived I'm all, I'm very interested in women that that we all think have died and then turns out, no, they're having an, a, an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. Hello, Georgia O'Keeffe. Or no, it turns out they're on Broadway. Hello, Catherine Hepburn. So I'm interested in these women that are very long-lived and kind of keep doing what they're doing. And so anyway, we were at this panel and Cheryl said, do you really think that's the reason why you write these about these women? And I, you know, obviously I thought it was the reason I did it. And she pointed out that... Um, in point of fact, when, when my mother died when I was 17, I'm an only child. I had no grandparents. I had no older aunts. I had no older cousins. I was suddenly the oldest woman in my family at age 17. And so these women that I was drawn to and um, you know, who lived these lives, they in a way became sort of these women who educated me because I had no women in my life related to me who could help me understand how to be a woman. I mean, my mother died before she went into menopause. Like, there was no sense. She was 45 years old, like what happens after that? And so, um, and also, you know, being an only child, not having sisters, not having cousins. I mean, I had girlfriends, but you know, this sort of ne- older generation of women who could help you figure out how to live. I had nothing. That's really fascinating. And so, Right? And so continuing to come to their stories to see what I could learn. And then, of course, because writing is the way it is, what I could then, in a formal way, also help other women in terms of how we can best sort of live our lives. And not perfectly and not without pain and not without struggle, but how do we make the most of this time?
0: That's really powerful. My my mentor Brandon Shimoda, who wrote a gorgeous book called "Grave on the Wall." When I've been working with him, he writes about ancestral pain. For me, when we talk, we have these conversations. He says most writers write the same story; they're trying to figure out over and over and over again, just in a different form. And I thought about that. Yes, you know. (laughs) So. That brings to mind whatever the portal in or the entry point in or whatever angle we're taking or thing we're trying to figure out, something in us is trying to resort out a story over and over again.
1: That's right. And I think that we, you know, and most likely we never, maybe we get a little further down the path, but we never sort of reach this goal of figuring it all out. And maybe it's better that way. Right.
0: Well, and so with Yeah, no not happening, which is coming out this week, mid-May, I thought it was interesting because it moves from profiling the way the women made their decisions and choices in from in praise of difficult women and how they were messy to sort of just putting it right there that giving insight into why being messy is cool and okay and and live with it and be with it and there's a lot to the book. I just started reading it because, of course, I just got it a few days ago. Of but, course. Well, yes. But, I mean, <laughs> I, have, I did start it. And I love how you're creating this space for not only permission, because that word is overused and kind of a cliche, but you're offering ways in to think about where it all stems from and it meaning self-improvery as you call it. And the sentiment of feeling like you're always having to catch up, be something, do something. And whatever you're doing, I guess I should clarify
1: that obviously I'm not against taking care of your body and you know we all know you're supposed to eat fruits and vegetables like you don't need to go on a new regime anybody who lives in this culture if you're born in this culture and if you're someone that's attracted to self-improvement regimes you already know a lot and part of what this constant reaching towards self-improvement does is it winds up teaching us not to trust what we already know to be true move your body, get sleep, eat an apple. You know, there's, it, it's actually quite simple.
0: You should probably bring in the subtitle too, because that is what the premise of the book.
1: Yeah, no, not happening. How I found happiness, swearing off self-improvement and saying, fuck it all. And how you can too.
0: There you go. See that, that is. Voila. Yeah. Voila. <laughs> oui, oui. So, um, <laughs> You want just to be clear and clarify that we're not against what women's choices are relative to how they take care of themselves or being fit or think what you're trying to go to is something different.
1: Yes. And it's, and you know, it's interesting because I start out saying that, that a lot of self improvement is our, our impulse to it is based on our sense of shame, that whoever we are at this very moment is not acceptable. Get out of shame. We try and improve ourselves. And like I said, you know, the nature of the beast is we don't even trust sort of what we know to improve ourselves. We have to go to somebody, somebody else, to an Instagram influencer, to, you know, somebody who can tell us how to do this thing. And I think it becomes habit. You know, it was interesting I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, she was talking about being in lockdown. In France, we call it confinement, which sounds very genteel in 19th century, doesn't it? Like, Does. weren't the pregnant ladies in, in Jane Austen always in confinement?
0: Ladies in waiting and in
1: confinement. They're in confinement, right? <laughs> en confinement. Anyway, she was saying that in, in her anxiousness, her anxiety and her, her not knowing what's going to happen, she kept finding herself reaching for self-improvement regimes and for programs and systems as a way of comforting herself. Even though she knew, because she's been through it, that the diets don't work, the, the serums don't work, the special powders don't work, the special, all the things that she was going for, she knew they didn't work, but she also felt that they were a way of, of almost comforting herself because she was so, it was such a habit to try and improve herself that way. And it made her frustrated. Part of how I got to the book is not what you would think. It was a very silly thing that actually led me to write the book. And that was someone had suggested, this is when bullet journals were all the rage, like in 2017 or whatever, mm-hmm. and you had to have your, your $57 bullet journal. In addition to bullet journal, there was also, it came with it, how to make the best of your morning or something. And there were like six things you were supposed to do every morning, like before you even started, read, do affirmations, meditate exercise, journal, blah, blah, blah. Did it like three days. I don't have like the worst habits on earth. Like I have solid B habits. They're not the worst. On the night of the third night, I stayed up late reading a novel until like 2 a.m. and I overslept and I leapt out of bed and I already hated myself because now I had to make a choice. Like, do I do affirmations? Okay, those are quick. Do I read and journal or do I exercise and meditate? Do I... And, and it was this completely artificial thing that only a week earlier I didn't know existed. And now I was hating myself because I had already failed to do these five things that were supposed to increase my productivity and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, okay, this is stupid. Now, this
0: is really stupid. You couldn't hashtag that shit. <laughs> that, it was so stupid. Hashtag bliss hashtag joy, hashtag universe has your back, hashtag meditate,
1: hashtag
0: Hashtag gratitude. And by the way, I'm
1: grateful, but (laughs) that was the other thing. I think you were supposed to have five things that you were, anyway. So the point was within a week, I had created this artificial construct that the only thing it did was make me hate myself. Even though a week earlier, I didn't even know it existed.
0: And then I started looking at all these things that we do. So it came from being like I mean, I can hear it in your voice. It's not, it's more than annoyance. Don't suck me into this rabbit hole like you fuckers.
1: I get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee, walk the dog around the block and write my 1000 words. Like done and done. And if I eat a donut afterwards, well, that is okay.
0: A croissant.
1: A croissant, exact. So, you know, I mean, it's it's anyway, so that's what really started me. And then, of course, it's a much larger consumeristic and capitalistic issue as well. And I get into that in the book is how women after the industrial age were sort of recast as consumers. You know, Jana, talking about it now as the world is, you know, kind of gone sideways and all these small businesses have collapsed and everything. And women aren't buying things. I mean, men aren't either, but women, women are the consumers of the world. And when we stop buying stuff, the economy takes a dive at our peril. Like why should we be sacrificed for the health of the economy? Why should we spend money buying stupid stuff? It doesn't end up making us feel better.
0: Right. Did you find that when you were talking to people that they feel like it's the thing that makes them feel whole or better? Not that you're begrudging anybody. I know you, that's not not what you're talking about. It's more just about the system and the construct and the expectation. Correct. In fact, I'm going to, as I go out with the book, sort of have a
1: worksheet that you can join my email list and I'll text you this worksheet. And it's really about finding out what you should say, yeah, no, not happening to. Like if it really makes you happy to train for a 10K and then you feel that that's worthwhile and you get up in the morning. I mean, if that's good and that's your jam, then go for it. But a lot of times we feel like we're supposed to and it's really not for us. It's about figuring out who you are. Exactly. And like I said, not that you shouldn't like if you want to get better at playing the guitar, I guess you could call that self-improvement. But if that brings you joy to do that, then do that. Much of the self-improvement, of course, for women has to do with how we look. There's I think in the in the the pie of it, probably half the pie is, are we thin enough? I didn't even really go into aging. Like, do we look too old? Do we look 35? we're always supposed to look 35 productivity. And are we a good mom? And you know, how do we handle work? And, you know, then there's other parts of it, but, but so much of it for women is how we look.
0: Yeah. And I do want to say that with Karen's books, she brings a lot of background and historical and contextual research and other ideas to together, like just to consider for yourself and all of it. It's not just snarky comments and opinions. There's plenty of that there is no shortage. <laughs> but it's pretty thoughtful. I mean, I think your work is actually pretty deep and pretty thoughtful.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. That means a lot to me because that's, I mean, I try for that.
0: Yeah, it really um, is. I mean, I've, I've shifted my thinking quite a bit after reading your work around what I took for granted, what I believed blindly. And it has prompted me to really re-question some of the things I thought about in terms of who these women were, their decisions, or even my own. So I think that's right. important. And you bring that to the table. So I'm super excited for this book. You must be excited too, even though it's a strange time in the world, just personally, for yourself, for your achievement, for your accomplishment. It's gotta be pretty cool.
1: As you said, it's such an odd time but I think that um, we all are spending so much time alone. I think this is this is not a, a bad time to kind of think of these things. And, you know, something I find really interesting is that when we first were sort of met with us, the first two weeks, everybody was making jigsaw puzzles and pillow forts and cookies and Twister. And it was and making music we were all doing things I think we went right back to it's just a big snow day and we are seven years old and what is going to be cheap help pass the time and we don't have to leave the house and there was and that was all over the place and I think it's interesting is that was where you go to when you need to comfort yourself Mm -hmm. you don't say oh my god my thigh gap look at you can't see air through that shit I gotta figure out how to I've got that flat spot in the back of my hair. How can I, you know, I and mean, you don't do that stuff. Right. When when times are really hard, those things that we do to improve ourselves, to to compete in the world of, of other women and in the workplace. And that is all real, by the way. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish that, but those
0: things don't at bottom are they're not important. The roots of meaning. Right. I think we try to find roots of meaning and creativity and expression comes down to the core of that. It's not the stuff, it's the being. Right. And I think that's beautiful.
1: Right. And it's not, do I have, you know, I I have my new Kate Spade bag and it's kind of a pumpkin color. I thought it was going to be more orange. I can't wear that. I can't, you know, carry this bag to work. I need to buy another one. Like all those things that, when times, are, times seem to be better that we, we can, are consumed with, fall away immediately.
0: So how do you think that relates to how we come to see ourselves? Because your book is all about self-love, acceptance, exploration, awareness, mm-hmm. allowance and really trying to find out who we are as women or even as people, but similar to my book to the idea and the exploration about identity, which is why I wanted you on is how do we, we've talked about this, how do people come to see themselves? It's an interesting question and it's one that is so perfect for exploration. And if the consumer vehicles and all of these things that we were part of suddenly stop, then what?
1: Right. Well, I think everyone, and I think this is true for men and women, there's a component of your life that you are what is reflected back to you. I think it's more prevalent for women. Women, historically, beauty is the coin of the realm. It always has been. And for many women, that, that is where they get most of their identity. And you know, we all get some of our identity there. But I think that if you have other interests, if you ha- do things that that are not exactly related to how you are perceived as a female in the larger world, that the more time you spend doing that, the more you kind of shore up that sense of who you are when no one's looking but you. I love that. And it may surprise you. And I think I think a lot of going back to, th- when we go back to things that we loved as children, When nobody was looking at us, and certainly when girls and boys were the same, and our gender didn't make any difference, I think it's it's worth kind of examining those things. Why
0: are we afraid to do that? Yeah.
1: Well, because I mean, because we we do get so much of our so much of our sense of ourselves from how people look at us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've
1: actually read a lot of interesting things about you know the this business when women kind of become invisible. Some women are like, "This is great. I can shoplift, and no one is even. I can I can put a toaster under my coat." no one even is looking at me. And they, they have the sense of freedom. Other women are very mournful about it. And I think both things are accurate. I think that's why the, everyone should come to France. You have a much longer shelf life in France. <laughs> you know, the other day, some, some guys were checking me out. I was like, wow, what are you looking at? And I looked past me and I realized they were looking at me. If you had parents that valued what you looked like, more than anything else, that's the message you get.
0: I I always notice how people, when they post pictures of their kids, oh my God, she's so beautiful. or She's so, you know, and I think it, it doesn't mean anything. People are trying to be kind, but I mean, I think it just starts so early, the recognition of what, and how people are showing up visibly in the world without, you know, she's so smart or she's so able or right. so thoughtful or. Right.
1: There's a lot of adjectives in English that we do not employ when we're talking about women. In Praise of Difficult Women, every woman had their own adjective that we view as quote unquote difficult. And I just think, you know, even if we expanded the language when we described people, it would be helpful. Right. Right. Um, I think, you know, I mean, women, we are, we are supposed to be hot too. And that is something I feel like I mean I'm getting way off track here, but I feel like even 50 years ago, like you could be the girl next door. You could be the sporty girl. You could be, but everyone has to be hot. Like everyone has to look as if, you know, look fuckable at every minute of every day. Like you've just had a baby. You've got four kids at home. Your husband's unemployed. You have two dogs, the roof's leaking. But are you hot and fuckable? That pressure I think is just crazy. And we just that needs to stop. And I'm all for looking, I'm all for looking good, but that nonsense needs to stop.
0: And I think it's interesting that maybe until we're not ready or whatever it is, we our priorities shift or we start to gain wisdom or insight or appreciation or gratitude, or I don't know, time becomes more of a reality but 40s, 50s, whatever the age range is for women to start realizing that they are not who they are based on how they look or what they do. And what does that mean? The journey of the second half of life or whatever, that's such a cliche too. But the next chapters of their lives can be based on other things that they can explore and discover is really a cool thing. And I don't think it's either cliche that people put out there like yay your best half you're gonna thrive after 50 because that's kind of bullshit too yeah
1: no it's that's that's yeah that's nonsense as well I mean it it's I think there's there's a place where you can you do know yourself and um kind of that that hamster wheel in your head about what should I do and what's really me I think that calms down a little bit and that's like that's nice But you are facing other issues.
0: I'm hot all right, maybe at 2 a.m. when I'm sleeping. (laughs) Well, and it was
1: crazy. I just on February 20th, my daughter had a baby. And it was like, you know, I went and saw her in the hospital before the baby was born, and people treated me a certain way. And then it was like, hey grandma, oh, are you here to steal the baby? And it was like in one day. I had been like shoved down the chair. I always think of it as, as, you know, the old fashioned talk shows where the new guest would come and everyone would move down the chairs. And I feel like, well, I'm now I'm a grandma. And I'm exactly who I was, you know, 48 hours earlier, but somehow.
0: I was going to ask you about that. How, how the joy of being a mother of a daughter who had a child, that's more how I'm interested. How was that? Yeah,
1: that's uh. I mean I can't explain it and um it's pure joy. It's like this tequila is pure beautiful tequila. <laughs> it's it's just yes, it's unadulterated joy. So cool. And you know, she the other thing is my granddaughter is named for my grandmother who was a fierce matriarch of the family and I'm a little afraid of this baby. This baby already; she's 12 weeks old, and she already has a like a gravitas to her that you don't associate with baby. Like she already is, has opinions about things. Fiona said she laughed the other day, and I said, "Oh my god, a baby laugh was it the most amazing thing?" And she said, "Mom, it was a little weird because she went." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Oh my god, that's like a demonic laugh." Like you know, it's awesome.
0: Pictures show that what you were describing—that right? little. Uh... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I, I feel your daughter's joy. I feel they're so connected. (laughs) I feel you're connected to their connection. Yeah. I, I see it. And that's just so beautiful and amazing and it's good you got to be here.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. And I'm, I'm also planning on coming. I'm coming at the end of July when they open up international flights here, but um yeah, I was so glad. No, I was, I was thrilled to, to be there. But, but that does, again, you, when you start thinking of your identity, and to be completely honest, as much as seeing Luna is her name and holding her in my arms, and I did not want to let her go, like I could have easily been a baby napper. I mean, mm-hmm. I walked out the door. Walking away from them, from that little family, and getting on the plane and flying back to my home felt I felt good about that because I felt like I was flying back to a person that I knew better than this new person, this grandmother person.
0: That's so amazing and beautiful and cool. Wow. Like what that opens up in yourself. It's odd though,
1: because you think, you know, everyone thinks grandma and I'm like knitted, I've knitted a bunch of silly blankets and I've bought books and all that. But for me, there felt so much that was not related to that. And I felt rather than sort of completely wholeheartedly submit myself to that transition I wanted to kind of crawl back to and by the way living in another country but that felt more like who I am than grandma in whatever way and by the way my mother died when I was 17 she, ne- she wasn't around when my daughter was born I had no grandma I had no mother to help me so that's the whole new thing too like who is that person how much do I hover a lot like do I bring bagels do I you know and and so I'm having to learn on the job because i had Catherine hepburn and Coco. they were those were my people that i had you know
0: yeah but fiona has karen fucking carbo luna is gonna have karen fucking carbo
1: oh my god i can't wait i'm already planning
0: her trips to france i know it's really exciting and and that's something that was probably the last thing i i wanted to cover because see you you're perfect our conversations are perfect because you you just segue right into what i'm thinking for a lot of people they don't know you and they don't know that a year ago in may you made the bold decision although not frivolous but very thoughtful decision to leave the country and move to france permanently to a beautiful small town collier i probably don't pronounce it right
1: nobody does it's okay you're not alone i don't think i do
0: either (laughs) And it's uh, just near the border of Spain. Right. And Mediterranean. so I wanted to just maybe touch on what I don't, I, I mean, there's a million reasons why you probably did it, but let's just talk about how it is. How are you liking it? I love it. <laughs> Next question. Um, <laughs> we, you know, we, I, I think the thing is too, it's important
1: for people to know is that we had been coming to this place for seven summers in a row for five or six weeks in the summer so we it wasn't just we, we didn't just pick a place on the map um, right you know, we we had made some friends with people um, there it, it's a it's a town it's of 3,000 people but in the summer it's a place where a lot of French people, and English people vacation. So it kind of expands in the summer. It's on the Mediterranean, the Pyrenees mountains hit the sea here. So it's like this little town right on the sea. You can swim. We swam until November. The, the sea is pretty cold now and the beaches are closed, but we're, we're looking forward. We have wetsuits. We, we can swim all year long. So, you know, there were things that really spoke to us regardless of whether we had moved. You know things that we loved about it. I've been a francophile my whole life, and had had thought I could move to Paris when I was you know nineteen. But I don't know. I mean, I love Paris. I love it so much. But I just more of a sense of nature. Like I said, I love
0: being able to swim in the sea every day. It's you know very low key here. Did that take a while to transition into being low key? Not on a vacation, but like actually coming from a country that is so no low key. I'm still working
1: on it. Still working on it. I mean, you're always 20 minutes late to everything. And when you if you show up on the hour, they're like, it's like a little bit of an insult, because it's like, I'm not ready for you yet, even though you're showing up on time. And yeah, people don't get too rattled about things. I mean, like I, I, I think I said earlier, you know, paperwork is a big thing, but it's sort of as long as you're kind of doing your paperwork and passing it along, nobody. It's pretty, it's it's pretty great. And I have to say too, the way the French government has handled the pandemic is quite wonderful. They're very disciplined about it, and people here the French don't t- tend not to like Macron because they just don't, and that's sort of part of politics. But having having a, a president who's smart and, and talks to scientists and is well-considered in his, he gives speeches and everybody listens and things are very organized and orderly here. And that makes us feel very calm. Read for what's going on in the US. I, I right. try and I try and only read the, the paper a half an hour a day because I want to live in France and I could, I could be on the internet reading stuff about Trump and about, everything, all day long. And I feel myself get sucked right back into, even though I'm, you know, we're Americans here and there's no getting, our French is okay and so on and so forth, but I want to live here. So I try and read all my news in French to really pay attention to what's happening in our department, the Pyrenees Oriental. And so it's interesting. And I think part of having the technology and the ability to talk to people at home every day makes the experience a lot more different than if we had moved here 30 years ago. And you would have to, you know, go to the post office and make, a, make an appointment to use a telephone to make a long distance call. So,
0: but it's great. How has in an environment of a different culture influenced the things about yourself you're discovering? That's an interesting question.
1: First thing is, you know, my dad, my dad was born in Poland and moved to the United States when he was nine years old. So he, when I grew up in Southern California, he was sort of not, he was like the weird dad he was not the dad outside barbecuing. He was, you know, he read books and he was very, like I said, very bookish and very kind of genteel. And he was very European feeling. And so, um, you know, part of my upbringing, coming to Europe doesn't feel that weird because, you know, my father, if, if you pull the camera back, we actually on that side of the family weren't in the United States that long really. But also, you know, the things I value, the French value, um, I, I just posted something on Facebook about the, the Academy Française about their language police, that they carry swords, the language police carry swords. The language police has decided that COVID-19 is feminine, but the coronavirus, which they pronounce coronavirus, is masculine. Um, so those kinds of things like geeking out about language and appreciating and valuing language and literature, I already was doing back in the States. So the fact that everybody else feels that way, you can talk to a French friend about language for an hour and they will just keep talking about it because they think it's interesting too. Um, The other thing that's kind of nice is being a writer. Writers are sort of rock stars. So when you're a writer, it's like, oh, It's not like, oh, have you been on Oprah? Do I know you? Are you a bestseller? They don't do that. They think it's pretty cool.
0: You get to swim in in familiar waters. Your soul gets to swim in familiar waters. But I would imagine that just being around in a place where details of life matter could make things feel brighter, more alive, more engaged. It would awaken something maybe that had had a necessarily had to be dormant because of where you were right. living.
1: Right. You make a good point about that. And I think the other thing is, especially dealing with pandemic, is that, I mean, the French aren't happy about it, but living in a place that suffered through World War One and World War II, only 20 years apart, uh, being here is interesting because they have many, many, many holidays that 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 commemorate things that happened in World War One and things that happened in World War II. They've been, they're such an ancient country and they've been through so much um, trauma that, you know, the things that they pay attention to, like having meals in, in kind of the correct way and drinking wine and markets and the exchanges that go on at the markets, like all of that feels something like something that they've just been doing for millennial, regardless of kind of this sort of horrible thing that's going on around them. And I think, you know, what it has brought to life is the United States is just so young and so adolescent. I think that's part of why 14 year old goes through something that 14 year old has a lot of his or her response is a lot different than a 44 year old going through it. And I feel like part of why this is just so harrowing and um, I mean, setting aside the politics is that I just think, you know, certainly in our lifetimes, we've never been through anything like this. Right. Living in this sense with this breadth of history now, that said... I think also, you know, France struggles under the weight of its own history. The epidemiologists and some of the the solar power people and stuff are are forward thinking, but you know they are they are really do struggle under the burden of their history as well. And plus, like learning a language, well, well, becoming becoming fluent in a language at, at you know a relatively advanced age is not for sissies. That's for sure. Or people that have any kind of um, sense of being embarrassed <laughs> about things.
0: <laughs> It doesn't seem like it would embarrass you. I feel like you would just go for it anyway. I mean, you could apologize along the way. It might be a little uncomfortable or awkward, but you'd still go yeah, for it.
1: Yeah, you know what? I found out I was in this uh, exercise, hilarious, that is a whole other podcast, this exercise class, and it was difficult, and I was laying there, and I, and I would also was aware that I was kind of like the jokey, like I was the only American in the class, and I would say things in French, and people would laugh and whatever. And it was really difficult. And I kept saying like, oh my God, oh God. Like, you know, when when working out is hard. Oh God, oh God, I'm sore. Oh God, this is, are we done yet with these jumping jacks? Oh my God. And then I found out weeks later that God in French means dildo. So <laughs> I'm like going, oh, my dildo, oh, dildo. And like, you know, they were just laughing and letting me. And so, you know, once that happened, it was like, uh, that's just how it is.
0: <laughs> All the French shenanigans.
1: <laughs> So many shenanigans, yeah.
0: That's really great. So super excited about your book. Can you take in and seep into the moment that something you've created, even though you've written many books, is it still new every time a book comes out or does it feel like familiar? Not that you would take it for granted, but can you revel in the newness and the birth and the process of putting a book out into the world? What is that like for you? I
1: think it's important to do that. To make it a practice to do that, because I haven't. Sometimes, depending on what else was going on, I think whenever we create anything, it's really important to take time to celebrate it. And I don't think, like I said, I, I at the very, very beginning of my career, I did. And then there was kind of us in the middle. It was like because you know you're writing one book that's due. Well, this book comes out. We all hope that every book is going to be a big, huge success. And then when it isn't, I mean, you know, successful enough. I mean. It's published. That's that's successful. But I think now it's just really, really important when we make these things to really give them the love and attention and, and sit with other people appreciating it and taking time to read it and taking time to talk to you about it. And I just think that as a practice that, that's important.
0: Well, it's a piece of your soul. You know, a exactly. lot of people don't realize that exactly. it's a piece of your soul. And we all want to be, I put it in my book, The Four Things People Want to Be Seen they want to be heard, they want to be understood, and they want to be loved, that we need those four things to feel like we matter, or that we were, you know, we just want to be seen in the world, and I think putting a book out is extremely courageous, and self-loving, and You've been an inspiration in terms of your (laughs) writing. I've loved reading it because it's given me a lot of permission and some of the things and decisions I've made. It's just like, it takes bravery. It does. I mean, if people don't realize you're bearing your soul, man,
1: you're out there.
0: You are for everybody. I recommend. Yeah, no, not happening. I don't say it as eloquently as the author Karen Carbo does. But the book is out, and for information, you should sign up for Karen's newsletters on karencarbo.com because she will be offering some worksheets and other things associated with the book and also give information on her workshops and retreats that she teaches, Um, one of them which is on hold but happens in France, and I am very much hoping that I'm on that next bandwagon to France is there anything else you'd like to share or add? This time is really hard. And I think it's just um,
1: figuring out the best way to be with yourself, whatever that looks like, is probably an effort that has nothing to do with self-improvement, but it does improve your relationship with yourself. And I think that's worth pursuing.
0: A woman. And you know what? Perfect timing. I mean, is there a, <laughs> is there a better time for your book right now? You know, I have no sense of whether, I don't know. Oh. I, I know how you feel because I feel like it, when my my book just came out three weeks before this hit it took me four years to get there and it right? just and then on one hand you think are we gonna be lost in the river of conversation that everybody's focus is other places but you know what we're really trying to do is get people to look at themselves, love themselves, explore themselves, be with themselves and if now is not the time now is the time to dig in now is the time right this is it. This is it. This is the time to dig in. Ask yourself the questions, who you want to be and how you want to be. I always say it's not who you want to be. It's, it's how you yeah. want to be. Because and also to just to have some mercy on yourself. It's always good to have mercy.
1: Like if you can't figure out anything else to do, just have a little mercy. Self-love. Mm-hmm.
0: And, not in, the and not, at,
1: right, not in the Hallmark card way. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love of self, discovery of self, allowance for self appreciation, recognition, whatever. Use your adjective because you're an adjective That's queen. That's right. Keep those adjectives going. <laughs> I've got so many of them, too many. Well, it's been super fun and I'm very much looking forward to hearing how it goes and we'll have to have a part two to Let's talk definitely. specifically about some of these Let's things. definitely
1: have a part two. And I feel like we have so much more to talk about.
0: I know, I know. But congratulations Thank sincerely you. and wholeheartedly. So- Happy for you in Thanks. this book. Thanks, Karen Carbo, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, A Midlife Conversation About Lost Identity, Grief, and Seeing Who You Are, visit www.janalopez.com Lastly, If and when you should have a moment of doubt because we all do in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving.